Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Jimmy Song. Jimmy is a Bitcoin advocate, a Bitcoin developer, and an author who has been contributing to open source Bitcoin projects since 2013. His latest book, which I highly recommend, is called Bitcoin and the American Dream, the new monetary technology transcending our political divide. Jimmy, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure from my car, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy is, uh, he's known for many things, but I think in the Bitcoin space, he is very widely known for his cowboy hat. And I thought it was so funny, Jimmy, you posted people at the Bitcoin conference taking pictures with random other men with cowboy hats and tagging you. That's how you know you've really established a brand. So I congratulate you for that. <laughs> it's definitely pretty amusing, uh, for sure. And I, I, I do enjoy when people make jokes like that because, yeah, it's hilarious. There's, uh, there's a really great series on the YouTube channel of, I think it's Wired Magazine, that does a show with experts in certain fields. And they have the experts explain something at five different levels of complexity. So they'll have a pianist explain, you know, harmony to a five-year-old, and then they'll have that same pianist explain harmony and talk about harmony to Herbie Hancock, for example. Mm. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Jimmy is that he's a rare person who can explain one concept uh, at five levels of difficulty. And most of our listeners today are people who have heard of Bitcoin, who have heard of cryptocurrency, as many of us have, but likely have no clue what it is or how it works. So I suppose I would start with maybe the simplest question of all, Jimmy, which is what is Bitcoin? Yeah, good question. Uh, the way I like to describe Bitcoin is it's, uh, it's digital gold, right? It's uh, decentralized, digital, and scarce. Um, and gold, I, I use the word gold as the analogy because gold is known as a decentralized, scarce commodity, and it has been for many thousands of years. Um, and what, what I mean by that is you don't need anyone's permission to go and get it, right? Like nobody, uh, nobody needs to, uh, like permission to go dig in their own backyard and look for gold. If you find gold, great. Like you can go sell it on the market. Um, in that sense, it's decentralized. There's no central controller, um, you know, controlling the supply of gold or anything like that. Uh, and it's also scarce. Um, for the last 5,000 years or so, one of the remarkable properties of Bitcoin I mean, not Bitcoin, of gold, has been that it's uh, it's like only inflated at around one or two percent per year for all of that time. Um, there were a couple of times when it wasn't quite uh, quite so good. Um, but, you know, I think it was like five or ten percent during uh, the years when uh, the Spanish were um, getting gold from the New World. But it's it's ha held this very steady stream of uh, scarcity for a long time. So it's both decentralized and scarce. The thing that makes Bitcoin different from gold is that it's digital. And the digital nature of it means that you can transact with it very quickly. Um, the property of gold that makes it very cumbersome for modern day transactions is the fact that it's physical. If you want to transport gold, it's, uh, you know, you, you actually have to physically hand it over. Um, and that that can be very cumbersome. So Bitcoin is digital gold. It's uh, it's scarce. It's decentralized and it's digital. So another, I think, messaging challenge, which we've talked about with Bitcoin is uh, and, and you, I think, 
as much as anyone has thought about this and produced content around this, why does it matter the advent and rise of Bitcoin? Why should that matter to the average working class person in America? Yeah, so I'll give you two answers, both of which are especially relevant more recently. Uh, the first is uh, straight up confiscation. Uh, and we, we've seen this with the Canadian truckers in particular, where we, we've seen, um, uh, you know, the government just sort of straight up take their money, uh, which is horrible for a variety of reasons, uh, but especially horrible when it's done with a political motive, which it was in Canada. Um, and having that uh, censorship resistance is a big part of why Bitcoin was created. Um, what put Bitcoin on the map was 2010, when WikiLeaks was looking for a way to take donations because PayPal had uh, had this uh, like uh, delinked or deplatformed their account, uh, and basically a lot of people were asking, okay. What can we use instead? Um, I think it was Amir Taki who first suggested, hey, we could use this new currency called Bitcoin. And uh, eventually in 2011, they started taking Bitcoin donations. And um, um, until Julian Assange's, uh, you know, arrest and, and uh, you know, subsequent trial and so on, um, he actually... Um, you know, they, they actually ran off of the money that they got in 2011 just in Bitcoin for a very long time. Um, but then, like, the legal costs added up and they no longer have that money. But that, that was the original use case. It's, it's this unconfiscatable money. The other case that's uh, coming up more recently is inflation. And, uh, you know, we, we had an 8.5% print here in the United States, which is probably still way too low. It's probably way higher than that in the range of 20 or 30%. Uh, but uh, inflation is a big deal, right? Like there's a lot of people that, uh, that are seeing their grocery bill go up and, you know, like there are weird stories of like people that have owned the truck for like seven years and being able to sell it for more than they got it at and stuff like that. That's inflation. It's uh, your, your money is debasing at the moment. And Bitcoin is uh, a way to hedge against that inflation. It's a way to protect yourself against that inflation. So, um, you know, if you are part of the political uh, class or, uh, you know, part of the class of people that might be targeted politically, um, unconfiscatability is a, a very important feature. And, you know, for everyone that's uh, experiencing inflation, don't have access to the inflation protected assets like, you know, real estate in the Hamptons or something like that, um, you know, like Bitcoin matters. Uh, the, it's it's fungible. It's divisible. It's, um, you know, it's just better money and you can store value in it way better than you can in the dollar or almost anything else. And for the record, I'd like our audience to know Jimmy just parallel parked a massive van while he was giving that answer, which shows you his, his incredible knowledge of this stuff and ability to communicate, uh, as well as his driving skills. But there's obviously so much interest in this space. And I think whenever I talk about folks about your last point, which is this store of value point, I see kind of eyebrows furrow. Because I think when you say store of value, people think of something that's in incredibly stable, whereas mm. Bitcoin's price has been very volatile. And I think one of the, uh, I remember um, Nassim Taleb, 
who I really respect as an author, wrote book, uh, The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile, wrote this big, it was called uh, The Black Paper, The Bitcoin Black Paper. And his big criticism was, this can't be a currency because currency needs stability. There has to be this small variance in price. And Bitcoin has a very large variance in price. So to those people who are just kind of like, wow, man, this, is, this seems very volatile. It doesn't seem like this sort of safe hedge that we're describing. What do you say to those folks? Well, over a short period of time, of course, it has some volatility, and we'll get to that in a moment. But but the real uh, reason why it's a store of value is because it performs very well over the long term. Anyone that's held Bitcoin over five years, they've done fantastically well against the dollar. And that's what a real store of value is. Um, think about it this way. Would you rather have an asset that's very steady to the dollar, but like degrades slightly every year? or in a very predictable way? Or would you rather have something that's volatile, but over a period of time, you get a significant upside? Um, and that, that, that's essentially what Bitcoin is. Almost everyone would say, if you're holding it for five years, yeah, like go, go, with, uh, go with the more riskier asset because um, you know, the, the long-term um, effects of it are totally worth it. Now, why, why is it so volatile to the dollar? Well, the thing is, like, any two commodities will be volatile towards each other. And, I mean, like, just look at gas prices. A year ago, it was like a buck fifty or something. Now it's like uh, $4 a gallon. Don't tell me, like, nothing's volatile. Um, the, the reason why you have that kind of volatility is because, you know, commodities, uh, you know, are overproduced, underproduced, and there's, like, all sorts of, uh, you know, like momentum trading and things like that, wh which affect all of the prices. Uh, but with, with respect to currency in particular, um, you know, you, you have a lot of different currencies besides the dollar that try to uh, keep a peg range against the dollar. So, for example, uh, the Japanese yen has more or less been, you know, within 20 percent of 100 yen to a dollar for a very long time. And, uh, and they do this for a particular reason. They do it so that the imports aren't too expensive and the exports aren't too expensive. If, if, you, uh, if you're too much in one direction or the other, you kind of get cut off from the global market in one way or the other. Um, so that, that's essentially uh, you know, how those are. And they're kept that way through uh, central banks. Uh, so what they do is if it gets too high, they'll sell some. Uh, if, if it gets too low, then they'll print some and, and so on. So th there's a central bank at the heart of a lot of the currency stability that you see in other currencies. And, uh, and they're the ones that sort of manage it. Now, Bitcoin is decentralized, meaning that you know, it's going to go up and down uh, without any machinations whatsoever. Uh, but that's a good thing. <laughs> that means that no one controls it. Uh, whereas, you know, what Nassim Taleb wants is something that's perfectly stable to the dollar, which is frankly impossible. Um, and what he's asking for is what a lot of investors ask for, which is I want something that goes up steadily without any volatility. Uh, I, I'm sorry to tell you, but no such <laughs> asset exists. Uh, if it did, like it would get armed out so that you wouldn't get any, any upside. Uh, so like th this is what central banks have been doing for ages, which is take the risk out of everything, but then you also take the return out of everything. The, the, the reason why, um, you know, uh, certain commodities, 
do well and certain uh, like certain commodities are um, are, are stable uh, is because of machinations of one type or another. So, mm. you know, uh, the lack of machination is a very good thing. And it's uh, the risk and reward are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. One thing I noticed at uh, Bitcoin 2022, where I was really fortunate to get to, to meet Jimmy in person for the first time, was it was a lot, one, there was a lot more women there than I would have expected at a typical tech conference or any kind of typical, uh, let's say, liberty-minded event. And also a lot more racial diversity there than any of the, I would expect at either uh, events of either of those two um, you know, social communities as well. What do you attribute that to? And also, am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, uh, certainly. And it used to be that, like, um, uh, you know, you go to a Bitcoin conference and there'd be like three women, right? Like, and out of like 400 or something like that, uh, rather than like, uh, you know, uh, the 10 or 20% that, that, that's more common now. Uh, but I, I attribute that to maybe Clubhouse or something like that. It's uh, it seemed to uh, have brought in a lot more women. Um, uh, you know, they're they're a lot more comfortable than something like Twitter, which is uh, frankly like very toxic, right? Like you get, mm -hmm. you get comments, and uh, especially if you're like you, you know you reveal yourself as a woman, you get like all these sort of sexist comments and stuff like that. Whereas like something like Clubhouse or Twitter spaces, you get to talk to people. It's a lot more social, which I think women appreciate. Um, so I, I have noticed that a lot of women come straight from Clubhouse. Um, you know, uh, I mean, black people have been in Bitcoin a, a lot for a while. So I, I don't think that's really new per se. Uh, the Clubhouse has supercharged that too. There, there's a lot mm -hmm. more uh, you know, there's the Black Bitcoin Billionaires group that my friend uh, Lamar Wilson runs. And that that's a that's a huge group, right? Like of uh, uh, of um, Black people that are getting into it. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, Black people on a per capita basis are more likely to own Bitcoin than white people. Um, and there, there's a very good reason for that. They've had their property stolen from them for a long time, right? Jim Crow laws, for example. And for a while there, they were the property, right? They were slaves. And that generational wealth and uh, inability to pass down generational wealth is, is, is something of a sore spot in the black community because people have been, uh, like governments in particular, have been taking away their property. And this is their way to protect it. It's, it's unconfiscatable. You're, they're, they're not gonna be able to very easily take it away using law. So it ends up being a very, uh, good thing for black people. And I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, people recognize that. And this is something about the Bitcoin community that a lot of people have a, a, a bad impression of is that it's a bunch right. of fiat bros that are libertarian anarcho-capitalist programmers or something like that. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, there, there's a lot of different constituencies within Bitcoin now. Um, so you have, you know, the black Bitcoin billionaires, you you have a lot of women in Bitcoin. You have, um, you know, military veterans and, uh, you know, even like Bitcoin boomers and stuff like that. They're, these are all subgroups within Bitcoin. They get into it for their own reasons. Um, and there, there's a lot to like about Bitcoin. And that's uh, that's a new reality coming in.
that change has been so swift and I think so much for the better. And I, when I was introduced to Bitcoin was 2012 and the only people I knew who knew about it were libertarian programmer, mostly bros using it to buy drugs on Silk Road. And mm. so it was being used in that purpose. It was not as a store of value an investment or generational wealth or anything. It was just this sort of black market use. Uh, and that was my first introduction to it, which brings me, I think, to uh, a point on the politics of all of this. It seems to me uh, maybe Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton are the most visible anti-Bitcoin politicians right now in the United States. Um, what are their core arguments as you understand them? And what do you think maybe is, is, is there any kernel of truth or any, to, to sort of Bitcoin criticism politically right now? I'm curious your take on that. Uh, well, I mean, the, their main criticism and the, the real reason why they're nervous is because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world and they think that'll get undermined by Bitcoin. They won't have necessarily this infinite money printing machine that they, they, they've grown used to. Um, and, you know, I, I could kind of sympathize because that's been the source of political power for a very long time. And especially in the U.S., uh, this is why the president of the United States is called like the most powerful man in the world or person in the world. Um, it's because of this uh, control of the money printing machine um, and this ability to enact monetary imperialism over a significant part of the world. So I, I kind of get it. Uh, there, there are other criticisms like ESG or, you know, it's wealth inequality or uh, or something. It's only used for illegal stuff. I, I don't give those pay much mind to those because we debunked those like seven years ago. They're, they're just sort of like repeating things that people haven't necessarily um, grasped. So. You know, I get it. Uh, I, I, I get what they're trying to do. Um, I will note, though, that those two are probably in the safest positions and they're in a position where they can criticize Bitcoin. Elizabeth Warren comes from Massachusetts, where for a long time, John Kerry was the junior senator from Massachusetts for like 30 years. Right. Because mm -hmm. Ted Kennedy was the other one. Mm -hmm. um, and she her safe her seat is super safe, uh, much like Chuck Schumer and many others. She doesn't need uh, you know, Bitcoin voters. Uh, so she can kind of say this stuff. Uh, but, you know, you go to a state like Ohio where, you know, it's a contested seat at this cycle. Um, you, you're seeing a lot more people, a lot, a lot of Democrats saying, OK, like, yeah, we're, we're pro Bitcoin. Now, what does mm -hmm. that mean or whatever? They're, they're not going to fall as easily into this uh, liberal narrative that's uh, that's way from the left. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton can also say those things because she's no longer running for anything. She's she she she's been an attack dog for like 30 years now. So she's used to this role of uh, sort of saying bad things about the things that she perceives as the enemy and mm -hmm. like sort of moving her party more to the left or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't pay too much mind to those. The, the ones in the middle, at least, all recognize, OK, we better get on board with this stuff or, you know, I might get punished in the polls. So you talked a little bit about the international implications of the dollar and being the reserve currency of the world. Uh, I think what, some of the most interesting stuff I was listening to um, down in Miami I mean, one of the best panels was, uh, I believe it's called Bitcoin is Freedom. And it was sort of three people from the developing world talking about uh, the implications of Bitcoin in the developing world. Uh, and one person on that panel was Yonmi Park, 
who was a refugee from North Korea, was uh, a, a was sex trafficked, I believe, out of North Korea into China and escaped. Um, Jimmy, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the implications of Bitcoin in the developing world. Yeah, the the main implications are that people have a good store of value. Um, and the thing is, they've been using the dollar as a store of value pretty much everywhere in in the world and have been for a long time. Like one, one of the anecdotes that I like to tell is that a crisp $100 bill in the developing world will trade at a premium to a wrinkled one. Uh, mm. You might be asking, what? why would that be? Well, it's because $100 bills are really good gifts. Uh, so they, they like having it nice and presenting it to like a wedding couple or something like that. Uh, and a wrinkled one just won't do. So you, you'll often get like a 10% premium on a nice crisp $100 bill. Wow. So like that's, that's how much the dollar has been used as a store of value. Uh, now, when you combine that with sort of like the U.S. dollar inflation that's been happening, um, I, I mean, it's been brutal for a lot of people in the third world, uh, in the developing world, right? Like, because this is this is their steady store of value, and even that's getting debased. Um, you know, like, and goods and services are costing even more. So, you know, uh, North Korea, for example, like a lot of the prices have doubled in the black market, and the dollar is the strongest currency in that black market. Everyone wants dollars, and you know, even that's not not a very good store of value. So. The ability to save, the ability to store value, the ability to plan for the future, these are all important parts of building civilization. And especially in the developing world, this is extremely important. Um, and, you know, one of the things I point out uh, about like uh, El Salvador is, you know, probably the, the best thing that's happened to them is this ability to say no to the IMF because, the IMF is basically a dollar organization that like loans out money. And then when they can't pay it back, you, you know, you have to sell uh, the, pro uh, you know, your country's assets to a multinational corporation, which is inevitably from the U S or Europe. And uh, you know, you, you uh, get under monetary oppression. Uh, it's monetary imperialism in anything but name. So that, that's what a lot of these developing countries have to hope to be able to do is to get out from, under this dollar imperialism um, that that's been prevalent, um, and that's very exciting because you know, uh, like whether we like to admit it in the West or not, like yeah, this dollar imperialism has enormously like hurt a lot of these countries. Uh, you know, like a lot of Mexican or Salvadoran or you know Honduran laborers, you know, come in illegally immigrate to the U.S. and and like build houses for us, right? Instead of building houses at home, like something is really wrong about that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're using the labor of all of these places and the resources of these places for our own benefit and not theirs. So, and th this is a prevalent thing with all kinds of imperialism. I mean, I was talking to Alex Gladstein, this is what's happening in Palestine and Israel. It's what's happening with the CAF countries and France and, and things like that. So, being able to get out from under that thumb is a huge, huge thing. I think wrapping up here, Jimmy, um, another implication that I've heard sort of getting into that sort of uh, foreign policy angle of all of this is China is rolling out its centralized digital currency, correct? And mm -hmm. there are also calls for the United States to do something similar. Uh, how should we be thinking about that? What does Bitcoin mean in terms of 
CCP versus versus U.S. government geopolitics, and what do we what should we think of a centralized digital currency in the United States? Um, well, so China has its own Belt and Road Initiative, and it, it's more or less very similar to what the IMF does. Right, like they they give out loans and then they, you know, uh, you know, get buy them back as soon as or buy buy the assets of the place when when they can't pay it back. So I think their plan is like a further monetary imperialism, similar to what a lot of other countries have been doing. Um, and CBDCs are a part of that. Now, more than that for China, they, they want to be able to surveil every, everything that their citizens are doing. And that's, that's another sort of angle on their thing. And this is why they probably kicked out all the miners in China, uh, from China and so on. Um, you know, who knows what their ultimate plan is, but that seems to be the direction that they're going. Finally here, Jimmy, um, Jimmy is, I think, a self-described, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on him, a Bitcoin maximalist. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, uh, what does that mean? It means that I believe all coins are complete scams, and they certainly are because they printed their own money. Um, any business model can work if you print your own money. So don't pay attention to all coins, just pay attention to Bitcoin, and uh, you know, don't fall for all of the scams that are in all coins. Um, you know, they... They come up with a new narrative every few months, NFT, DeFi, Metaverse, whatever. Um, all of that is to sell you on their coin and get you to buy, and that's it. That's, um, it and it's a complete grift. Don't, don't bother. Jimmy Song, he speaks directly and he explains things at five levels of complexity. I really appreciate your time, Jimmy. Thank you.